Okay, now those of you who are listening on Twitch should be able to hear me. Uh, those of you who have been listening on Discord probably have been hearing me for the full time. I was just talking about the sudden ending of our last class and apologizing for my sudden loss of internet last time. I don't know what happened uh, to my ISP, but um, anyway, okay, so we are we are back though, and we should be. Uh, uh, we should be back straight through. Uh, I'm sure we'll miss uh, a week or so around Christmas time, but we should be uh, uh, we should be through um, into uh, uh, in through there now. I'm done with traveling until then. So thanks again for joining me. Good to see everybody again. Glad to be back. Um, uh, so and this is of course this is the one uh, broadcast I'm able to squeeze in this week before Thanksgiving comes around. Uh, because, uh, you know, so I won't be broadcasting on Friday, so there's no Grif- Grifflet stream on Friday, no film film on Friday. Um, but um, uh, we're going to be, and of course, there's no Mythgard Academy on Wednesday because we are still in between classes, having brought the Treason of Isengard to a triumphant finish and, uh, uh, and now preparing to begin our next class. And in case you haven't heard the news, our next class uh, is going to be on The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, uh, which will be a lot of fun. While I was away last week on vacation, I listened to both the original uh, uh, radio broadcasts of The Hitchhiker's Guide and uh, re-listened uh, to the full book, so I am, uh, I am, I am all set. Uh, I totally know where my towel is, and I am ready to, uh, uh, to, to talk about... Um, a Hitchhiker's Guide. The plan is has, was to start next... Okay, we're still a little bit up in the air. I'm not sure we're going to be ready to go next week. If we're not ready to go next week, it'll be the week after that. Um, but exactly. Uh, not, not, not Vilkius. Okay, I almost did the vowels wrong in your name. Uh, don't panic. That's the thing. Just don't panic. The class will start next week or it'll start the week after that, but don't panic. Um, so, uh, yeah, exactly. Sam, just have, uh, just have a, you know, several pints of beer, you know, two or three pints of beer and, and several packets of peanuts and you'll be fine. So, uh, don't worry about it. Um, excellent. So, uh, so that's, what's going to be starting up. So you've got some time to review. Of course, the book is not a long book. This should not be a marathon class. Uh, I'm think I haven't decided on the for- the final schedule yet. I'm, I haven't finished drawing up the final schedule yet, but I'm thinking probably probably five or six weeks, and then uh, in January, most likely sometime, we will be uh, launching into our next book, which is of course the War of the Ring, the final volume in the uh, uh, in the history of the Lord of the Rings uh, series. Volume, oh goodness, what is it? Eight, right? Five, six, seven, eight. Yes, volume eight uh, of the History of Middle Earth series. Uh, as we are preparing to be now two thirds of the way through, I, you know, it's so cool. I never thought, ever, ever, ever thought I'd be doing that. I uh, never thought. I mean, I remember somebody first brought that up to me, gosh, ages ago, back, you know, in the first few years of my podcast. Somebody was like, "You should, you should teach the History of Middle Earth series," and I'm like, "Oh man, when am I going to get the time to do the History of Middle Earth series?" And the answer, the answer, of course, to that question is when the Mythgard Academy electorate insists on it. That's when I'll get the time. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, that um, will be uh, will be will be pretty cool. So no, Tony, we don't have the sign up uh, link yet for the Hitchhiker's Guide class. Um, all that stuff will be will be coming up soon. We hope to, I hope to have the full uh, uh, website and everything, all the information ready for that by the end of the week. Uh, of course, in fairness, 
to uh, uh, the Signum and Mythgard website guy. He's just waiting for my schedule. He's got the page already set. Uh, he's just waiting for me to finish up the schedule. So we'll totally get there. It'll be good. Something weird just happened. <laughs> I have no idea what that sound was. <laughs> Sorry. Has my phone just made a weird noise? I have no idea what happened there. Huh. Okay. Ah, so not not Vilkius, you say that you... Well, yeah, you can take a chicken through the Black Gate. Can you take him all the way to Mount Doom, though? That's the... That's the... That's the question, right? Um, can you... Uh, uh, I'm not sure. Anyway, so yeah, if it's if it's possible, the last I heard is that it still it still wasn't open yet. But if it's opened now, then we'll 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 start making plans. I hope to do uh, our hot wings chicken run, uh, you know, the the fried chicken run, uh, uh, sometime in December. I'd love to do that sometime in December if we could make it. If we we could make that happen. Um, yeah, Matt, that did sound like the find my iPhone noise. That's what I was thinking too. And I'm like, well, I didn't, I didn't do anything. Whatever. Okay. Probably my son doing something interesting upstairs. Um, but, <laughs> but anyway, okay. So that was, that was fun. Um, so let's, um, let's, uh, let's, let's get moving. I'll get, well, two other quick and just two other quick reminders. Uh, don't forget that uh, text moot. Is coming up soon now. It's going to uh, January 13th. We're less than two months away from Texmoot uh, down in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, and that's going to be a great time. We are, have a, a bunch of people now who have uh, signed up to give papers. going to be a really, really interesting uh, set of presentations. Uh, I can't wait to get back down there uh, to Fort Worth and uh, talk about Tolkien for most of a week leading up to it as well uh, down there at Scarborough College. So that'll be fun. Anyway, it's going to be great. Um, I hope to uh, be able to, uh, to meet some of you. Uh, down there at Texmoot. So if you're in the uh, general Texas area, I'm uh, looking forward to being down in your neighborhood, and I hope you can join us in Fort Worth on Saturday, January 13th. Just go to texmoot.org, and you can find all the information that you need there. Um, Also, MythMoot registration is open. We have uh, a bunch of people signing up for MythMoot already. The early bird registration has started. It's about $50 cheaper uh, than the full registration price. Um, so, uh, I, I encourage you if you, if you can to, um, uh, to look into that, that of course is going to be from June 21st to 24th, uh, down in Leesburg, Virginia. That's our big national and international conference. Oh, Nat Filkius, let me think here. When does early bird cut off? I don't remember. Um, I'm on a need to know basis with that, but as I recall, sometime December, I think is when it's going to cut off. It's, you know, it might go through the end of December. But I don't remember. Um, sooner is better than later, though, as far as that's concerned. Um, yeah. So, all right. Um, so uh, let's. So that's it. Let's get. Let's get moving. I've got two things, uh, two discussion points that I wanted to pick up on from uh, both from Twitter and from uh, the discussion boards uh, before we get back to our passages here tonight. Um, first thing is. Um, uh, Tony Mead, I wanted to thank you for sort of taking up my challenge uh, there. Uh, I gave a challenge last time to say I want somebody to look systematically because we, we, we were having East and West issues, right? The question was when we come across East or West capitalized, how safe are we in concluding that they're referring to the East, meaning like Mordor, 
Sauron evil stuff in particular. And when they talk about the West, capital W, are they talking about the West, you know, Valinor and all that? Uh, you know, how um, how portentous are we permitted uh, to view those kinds of capitalizations, right? And how consistent is Tolkien in his usage? Now, Tony confirmed what I already suspected, which is that Tolkien is consistent in his usage. This is, I have generally find, uh, generally found. Um, Tolkien has, you know, there, there are uh, many issues that Tolkien has. Inconsistency is usually, is generally not one of them. Uh, and he is much more likely to adopt a system which is just strange or, or different from the normal and common usage than he is to simply kind of be arbitrary about stuff and, and, and you know, doing a, a usage one way in one place and a different way in a different place. That he very rarely does. Um, so I was figuring it would be consistent. Uh, and uh, so let me get to Tony's observations, which he just tweeted uh, earlier today. He says, whenever you see north, south, east, and west in lowercase, it is when it is being used to indicate a direction of navigation, such as heading east. And that, of course, is what I is what I assumed, that when there's no capitalization, it's just purely, uh, you know, a, 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 a navigational point, as he says. When you see the direction where it's capitalized, it is under three circumstances. One, whenever it's used in a proper name, of course. In the case of east, it's capitalized for things like east farthing or east road or easterling. So certainly part of a proper noun, and that's pretty clear. Two, whenever it's being used to indicate a general region rather than a direction, and is always preceded by the, as in the east or the west. This is even consistent in the prologue where Bilbo's journey is described as into the east and his return. Right? His journey into the east and his return. Uh, lastly, the direction is capitalized whenever it's associated with or in a passage with something uncanny or supernatural. For instance, whenever the Black Riders are mentioned, East is always capitalized. Likewise, when something revered is mentioned, it's the West. So this, to me, then, is the real crux of the question. And uh, I, I really appreciate Tony's uh, uh, sort of going through and laying this stuff out. That, that all sounds uh, very, very sensible uh, and very intuitive. The trick is what happens... How do you differentiate between two and three, right? Because the real, the, 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 the crucial interpretive question, right, that we're trying to answer is how safe are we in reading a capitalized East or West as meaning, you know, Mordor or Valinor, essentially? How safe are we in thinking that when it's capitalized, it means... You know, it, it has that kind of a that kind of a symbolic meaning, that kind of uh, that kind of a mythic weight, right? In addition to just being direction or referring to that region. You know, like are they from the east, or are they from the east, <laughs> right? Um, uh, or like they, you know, again, and the same thing with with, with the west. So. But the answer, it seems, Tony, at least from your initial. Uh, and I know, of course, you. I, I omitted at the beginning uh, of your tweets your apology for the fact that, of course, it would take a, a great deal more space, obviously, than you could do. I think you did this in like three or four uh, tweets. Um, obviously, it would take more room than that to be able to uh, uh, to really do justice to the analysis. But, um, but anyway, okay. So, the the answer to the question, how safe are we in reading capitalized East and West as meaning those kinds of mythic concepts? 
um, how safe are we in reading those? The answer would seem to be not very safe, right? Um, it's um, because if, or again, to put this in a different way, how can we differentiate between the capitalized East and West in sense three, the portentous mythic one, and the capitalized East or West merely in sense two, in which it's just being used as a proper noun because it's referring to the region, right? Not as part of a proper noun like East Farthing or Easterling, as in sense one, which is which is a good, of course, good to mention uh, for thoroughness, but there's, there's no confusion about that one, right? The issue is in sense two and sense three. Um, so how are, uh, again, how, how safe are we in coming to, uh, in, in, in interpreting? And it seems, it seems a little bit unclear, right? Um, uh, Freemorn is asking about uh, the, the nouns in the winds poem, the north wind and the east wind and the west wind. I would assume, of course, they don't talk to the East Wind, but uh, I believe those are capitalized. But again, those would be capitalized in the in the number one sense, in Tony's first sense here, right? They would be capitalizing North Wind and West Wind in the same way that they would be uh, capitalizing East Road, right? Because it's they're using that as a proper noun. Um, the question comes in in other places, right? Again, like, uh, <clears throat> there are some cases, there clearly is a sense too, right? Now, some people might argue that um, sense too is mostly occasional, right? Uh, that is, it's sense three is the really important one. But again, how can you differentiate? The example that Tony gave is a really good example, right? Because it's, it's in the prologue of the Lord of the Rings, so it's not a Hobbit example. So it's it is in the, is it is in a context where we might expect, you know, the capital E East to have the kind of mythic significance that it has in the rest of the Lord of the Rings, and yet it's clearly not in that case, right? Bilbo's journey into the East is not a trip. To, he doesn't go to Mordor, right? He doesn't go to the mythic East. He just goes east, right, into the East in the sense of the lands that are east uh, of the Shire. Um, so, um, yeah, so, so I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure about what, uh, how firm we can draw those conclusions. It's still, to me, that the crucial question is still, well, I would say totally open, but still uncertain, right? How can we be sure? How can we draw a distinction between sense two and sense three? Um, and I'll be interested to see what you guys uh, uh, what you guys think about this as we move forward. Of course, we'll be we'll be taking note of this kind of thing as we go uh, and asking this question. See if we can you know we'll we'll be slowly gathering some data. Of course, I'm sure that uh, many of you could gather data a little more uh, a little more swiftly um, than uh, uh, than we we uh, we normally would. Um, but uh, anyway. Uh, Still, I think it's, uh, it, to me, the crucial question is still not really fully answered. Is there some kind of a system? Is there is there any kind of, I mean, I, uh, you know, Tony, you, you refer to things like when we're talking about the Black Riders, 
But I wonder. Of course, when we're discussing the Black Riders and we talk about the East, we're predisposed to be thinking of East in the mythic sense, right? Thinking about Mordor, right? But is that is that is it is is that necessarily so, right? Um, I don't know. I wonder again. So I, I'm 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 wondering if there is any further kind of usage cues, any other kind of usage consistencies that we could look at that would give us a way, um, you know, any kind of pattern that we can discern which would help us to to be able to, to see more clearly um, whether or not this is the direction being used in a proper noun in sense two or in sense three. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Um, one more uh, uh, really great uh, observation. This is from uh, Hrothjar uh, on, the, on the discussion board. I, sorry, I just love that name. Um, anyway, so it's about the, the, the Hall of Fog, which was the last slide I got through before I was suddenly uh, cut off and overwhelmed in fog myself last time. Uh, Hrothjar says, I couldn't help but compare the moment when the fog rolls over the hobbits to another scene that occurred previously in the story. The fog forms a hall of mist whose central pillar was the standing stone. My mind immediately recalled the description of Woodhall in chapter 3. There the hobbits find themselves in a wide space like a hall, roofed by the boughs of trees. Their great trunks ran like pillars down each side. In the middle there was a wood fire blazing, and upon the tree pillars torches with lights of gold and silver were burning steadily. The hall of mist is a negative inversion of Woodhall. One is warm and living, while the other is cold and dead. Light fills the elf glade, while pale shadows gather in the downs. Even the sequence of events surrounding the hobbits' encounter with the halls are reversals of one another. In Chapter 3, the hobbits encounter the elves, creatures not entirely of the mortal realm, then travel to Woodhall, where they fall, where they fall, where they eventually fall asleep. In the Barrow Downs, Frodo and company first sleep, then awaken to watch the hall encompass them, and finally depart to encounter the Barrow Whites, creatures also not entirely of the mortal realm. We've noticed how the events of the old forest in the Barrow Downs bracket the time in Tom Bombadil's house. These two halls, each the mirror reflection of the other, seem intentional. Perhaps Tolkien is using them as counterpoints to the first leg of the Hobbit's journey, way markers, near the beginning and the end of their trip from the Shire and into the larger world. Really wonderful observation. Um, Hrothjar, uh, I... Um, first of all, can I, I say that, that middle chapter in particular... Uh, really reminds me of, uh, uh, and I say this only because of the, the sort of the form of it, because you're, you know, writing something short, uh, reminds me, this is like exactly the kinds of observation I used to love making uh, in, uh, in essays that I would write, that I used to write, you know, papers that I wrote in college or in, or in graduate school. I love those, like sort of that kind of observation and then kind of working out the, uh, the, the parallels and showing how it fits together. Really, really cool. So, uh, anyway, that fa fantastic observation. The fact that they are both parallel but also inverted to each other seems to me exactly right. I had never really put those two scenes next to each other, uh, but once uh, once you do, uh, I, I agree that I find that uh, that 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 connection that connection that correspondence uh, to be pretty compelling. Um, I would push even harder, I think, 
on the parallels there. I think you could do even more with that. Because um, you're right about the, the falling asleep, right? Um, and the, the, the creatures not entirely of the mortal realm, which, uh, uh, which is, was, a, was a really tactful way of saying that, of course, connecting the Barrow Whites uh, to the elves. But of course, you can, you can go further than that, right? Obviously, the inversion, the, just as the two halls are parallel, but inverted to each other, darkness and light, um, uh, 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 you know, life and, uh, and cold death, right? Warm life and cold death. Um, so too, you can see the elves and the bar and the barrow whites as a kind of inversion of each other as well, right? Um, you've got the one which are not entirely mortal. Be- you know, the elves are not entirely mortal because they're so full of life, right? Unlike humans, their life doesn't end, right? You've got the the barrow whites who also, unlike normal humans, their life doesn't end, right? They drag out their existence apparently perpetually. Um, and yet they don't have this, they are not this like overflowing wellspring of life that the elves seem to be, um, but rather the reverse, right? This little stagnant pool uh, of life that just can't die, right? That just can't dry up. Um, so thinking about the relationship, the way that the hobbits kind of relate to both of them, right? Thinking about, on the one hand, Sam's elves, sir. Right, and on the other hand, the stories and the, the fear that they have of the bear of the the barrow whites, right, and what the barrow whites mean to them uh, in their stories. Both of these are creatures of legend, right? Creatures of Shire legend, um, both in a sense existing on the on the borders of the Shire. The elves, of course, aren't aren't necessarily uh, you know sort of fixtures or features uh, of the Shire, but they are features of Shire legends, right? And um, and right there on the outskirts of the Shire, in the sense that they are known to sometimes wander in the Shire, right? Sam is Sam thought he saw one once, remember? Um, so uh, anyway, so you, I get you get another parallel there, but again, their effect is quite different. And thinking about the the status of these two, and again, I like the the way that he's sort of thinking of the structure of the the old forest, you know, the Tom Bombadil chapters that we've been looking at. And then thinking about these two as, uh, um, as bracketing the thing. Um, that I find really interesting. And of course, what I, what I, what I always want to go back to is I want to look at, I want to remember that passage. What did that passage mean to the hobbits? That, that visit to Woodhall, to the Elven Hall there, um, above Woodhall. Uh, you know, what was, what was emphasized? what was emphasized in the description of the Hobbit's relationship to that? And what I keep coming back to first and foremost, and there may be other ways of course to look at it as well, but what I keep coming back to first and foremost is that conversation between, uh, between Gildor and, and Frodo that we talked about a lot, um, where the, you know, Gildor is saying it's not your Shire, right? Um, that whole question of sort of, of, of boundaries, right? Of Frodo thinking, I'm still safe. I'm still inside the Shire, right? We have, and, and Gildor basically saying, you need to change the way you look at the world, right? It's not your Shire. You've tried to fence uh, yourselves in from the rest of the world, but you can't forever fence the world out. Um, and we do get uh, a really interesting kind of inversion of that as well, right? When they cross the boundary and now they're outside the Shire, um, that whole fencing in thing, right? Is they're getting fenced in. Um, notice how when they're outside the Shire, 
so far they've encountered nothing but fences, <laughs> right? Um, you can't forever fence the, they've tried to fence themselves in, but they can't forever fence the world out. And isn't it interesting or ironic that when they do, as soon as they cross the boundary and go through the hedge, what they find are a series of fences that they can't escape, right? They get fenced in to the old forest and they can't find their way out. They get fenced in to the Barrow Downs with the fog and they can't find their way out, right? Both of, in both cases, they are trapped. And that trapped is ironic, right? It's a kind of irony or parody of, uh, of the, um, the situation with, um, uh, uh, with the, the way that Gildor described the Hobbit perspective, right? Which is interesting, which actually thinking in here, I'm kind of wandering off the parallel with Woodhall track, but, um, it's interesting to think of the Barrow Whites from that perspective, actually. We want to hang on to that, come back to that, perhaps, I think, probably next week. Um, in of, the, the Barrow Whites as a kind of a foil to the Hobbit perspective itself, right? That might seem in some ways counterintuitive, but thinking of that whole fencing in, that sort of inward-focused and shut-off-from-the-rest-of-the-world perspective <clears throat> that Gildor describes the Hobbits as having that Frodo, remember, expressed frustration with, uh, in his conversation with Gandalf back in chapter two, um, we can see there is a sense in which the Barrow Whites are like a one extreme version of that, right? Um, yeah, yeah, cool. And Rothgar, absolutely, thinking of the Barrow, the song of the Barrow Whites, um, uh, and comparing that with the song uh, of the Elves as well, right? Yeah, absolutely, Rothgar. You think about the, uh, got, so Hrothgar in the, in the, in the, it's. You're not the same, are you, Hrothgar? In our in our in our in our Discord chat with uh, Hrothjar on our um, uh, on our uh, uh, discussion board. But anyway, yes, uh, the 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 anti-parallel there between the the Song of the Elves, which is of light, right beyond Middle Earth, and which drives away the Black Rider, and then the song which seeks to bring to wait for the darkness to come uh, and to bring the darkness around them. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, okay. Um, all right. Um, quick, uh, quick reminder. Okay, good. It is the same. I figured Hrothgar was taken, which is why uh, I thought it was a pretty good chance it was the same person. Uh, I reckon it was the same picture anyway, so. Um, Cool. Uh, quick reminder: um, if uh, please try to, and I know this is hard locations and being and logged into four different places at once. Uh, if you're in the Discord chat, please try not to do back and forth. Like, don't let yourself get distracted with side conversations with each other. Because then I'm, I'm just gonna. If anyone is trying to make a comment on what I'm saying or on the passage we're discussing, it's gonna get it's gonna get washed downstream, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be able to see it. It's gonna be harder for me to follow along. Um, so totally don't want to discourage people from having side discussions. Just have them in the, in the Twitch chat is the place for that. Uh, and then you can, uh, and then the discord channel can be kept, uh, more for, uh, for just for me to be able to see stuff that people want to communicate to me directly in real time. All right. Um, uh, yeah, JJ, that's true. Of course, you could also use the general channel, uh, on, on our dis on uh, discord. Yeah, that also would work too. Um, all right. Um, well, we'll get to a closer comparison of the songs, uh, of course, 
Uh, don't think that's not going to happen. Uh, we'll talk about that, but we're not going to get to the songs tonight. I have no aspirations to get so far as the songs. If we can get Frodo inside the barrel, we're going to be doing well here tonight. Um, all right. So uh, let's uh, let's let's get back to it. So this, as I recall, is the last one that we finished. I kind of wanted to start again. I felt awkward being cut off in the middle, so I wanted to kind of remind ourselves of this so that we'd be prepared to uh, move forward. <clears throat> Plus, it's been two weeks anyway. All right. Um, and I know, JJ, it did sound kind of sinister when I said that I wanted to, if, if that, we, that we'd be doing well if we got Frodo inside a barrel. Of course, he won't be doing well, but we'll be making excellent progress. Okay. They felt as if a trap was closing about them. But they did not quite lose heart. Now, this is going to be an important thing. Um, uh, Marielle and JJ were having a really interesting debate uh, on the discussion board about this, which I thought was which, which was really really interesting. I think that Marielle uh, had some really good initial uh, points that I really wanted to uh, to to kind of come back to. She was emphasizing the perspective of the hobbits. She was addressing the general question, which we talked about before. Why don't the hobbits call for Tom Bombadil sooner? You know, is, is, is it just pride? You know, they don't want to, um, you know, they feel like they've gotten themselves in trouble and they don't, you know, they're embarrassed that they have, uh, you know, done such a bad job, both of listening to his advice and of taking care of themselves. And so they're not quick to uh, to call him. And the, the most important point, the thing that I would want to emphasize uh, most uh, as well, just like Marielle was, is uh, um, that... Um, it's important for us to look at their reactions, right? What are they thinking? Like we can speculate that maybe they feel too proud uh, to call to, Pompa, to Tom Bombadil now, but is there any evidence that they were feeling that way, right? We might imagine that like we might feel that way if we were in the Hobbit's position, but that's not good enough, right? What are the Hobbits actually thinking? So I want to focus on that, on their sort of mental uh, and emotional state, uh, throughout this passage, <clears throat> not only for that reason of trying to understand uh, better where they're coming from and why they might not call Tom Bombadil right away, but even more importantly, seeing this, seeing the, the lead up to the physical assault uh, of the um, of the Barrow White. Because one thing that I think that we can see fairly consistently throughout the entire interaction with the Barrow White, Frodo's time in the Barrow and the time leading up to it, the primary issue with the Barrow Whites is not physical assault, but spiritual assault, emotional and spiritual assault. Um, so this question, they did not quite lose heart, seems to me a really crucial note that the passage is, is, uh, is striking here, right? Um, so uh, they still have... They still have hope, right? They still remembered the hopeful view they had had of the line of the road ahead, and they still knew in what in which direction it lay. In any case, they had now so great a dislike for that hollow place about the stone that no thought of remaining there was in their minds. They packed up as quickly as their chilled fingers would work. Um, now, one thing, and JJ, this is a great point that you made in that debate and that you were just making again here on Discord. JJ says that he thinks it's more conspicuous that they don't even seem to be thinking about Tom Bombadil at all. <clears throat> uh, and JJ, I completely agree. You'll notice in that paragraph there, they seem to be considering that they have two options, right? Either they continue on their way, attempting to find 
the way out of the Barrow Downs and find their way to the East Road now in the gloom, fog, and darkness. Or they stay, right? They stay where they are uh, by the Standing Stone and don't try to... Because, you know, witches would not be necessarily a stupid plan, right? Because you might say, well, they're here by a Standing Stone in the Barrow Downs. This is not safe, right? But surely it would be less safe to wander around randomly and get lost and separated in the dark, right? So that's not an attractive option. So saying, okay, this is not a safe place, but at least we're together and we're not lost and, um, you know, we're on high ground and could might be able to defend ourselves or whatever. I mean, you know, it's 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 not the worst case scenario, right? Got, leaving and, and going off and getting lost could definitely be worse, right? But, J.J., as you point out, there's no option three, right? There's no, hey, wait, uh, alternatively, we could just call Tom Bombadil right now, right? Um, they don't uh, They don't seem to be thinking about that at all. Um, now, I agree, Mario was making this point in her post. Uh, Tony was just, uh, um, uh, was just suggesting the same thing here, too, that there's also not really any reason for them to panic. Um, it's just a bit of fog, right? Uh, or at least I would say, Tony, it's reasonable for them not to panic, right? Reasonable for them to think that they will still be okay, right? Um, uh, and I would also add that it seems to me quite likely that... Um, it seems to me quite likely that not losing heart, retaining their hope and going ahead towards the exit um, with confidence, even if that's false confidence, um, is better, I think. That's, I think, a good call, frankly. Acting in hope seems like the right move in this case. Um, so... I can't really, uh, I can't really fault them uh, for that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Blue Wizard was just saying. Uh, Weather systems can often be unpredictable. Perhaps they'll assume it will just pass. Um, yes. But see, that's exactly one of the questions here, right? This, this is not their first rodeo. This is the second time that they have been ensnared by a mighty singer... Uh, in a dangerous spot. And both times, it was by mechanisms which might seem outwardly not enormously threatening. Right? I mean, the first time, they just they were just getting lost in the woods, and they ended up at the Withy Window. It could happen to anybody. Right? Um, but even at the time, they felt like they were being herded to the, you know, they were their path was being deliberately blocked. And then, of course, they found out later from Tom Bombadil that, in fact, that was perfectly true, right? That that old man Willow had been, in fact, 
bringing them down to the Withywindle Valley on purpose to destroy them, right? Uh, so it was not, it might have looked like there was a perfectly natural explanation to it, but there wasn't, right? Here again, they're now surrounded by, the, they've fallen asleep, they've woken from a sleep they never intended to make, which might be explicable. Remember the narrator's tone there, right? These things, you know, eating a big meal, resting too long, you know, sitting in the sun, uh, perhaps is enough to explain what happened. And in the, in the tone of the narrator there, we can hear the kind of, not exactly the rationalization, but sort of the question, right? Is it? They have this data, right? And, and, and you're absolutely right to say, you know, those of you who are saying the weather can change, of course, Tom did uh, advise them about how quickly the weather can change. There is no absolute reason to think the fact that we are now suddenly surrounded by fog on this hilltop uh, proves that we are under spiritual assault and in deadly danger and we should call Tom right now. Um, it's true that that's not obvious, but maybe, maybe they could have learned from what happened last time. Uh, maybe they should be a bit more suspicious than this exactly, as Lady Shmebulak says, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, right? And it, it, this does, to me, have a little bit of a fool me twice kind of, uh, kind of air to it. Maybe I'm being too hard on them, right? But at the very least, what I'm saying is, I don't think, oh, hey, don't, you know, just keep your heads, don't worry about it, it's just a little fog. Um, that, I think, is not necessarily the right attitude, right? I do think it's the right attitude for them to proceed, hopefully. I think leaving this hilltop is a good call for the reasons that they do it, um, that they don't lose their hope that they can escape. But I don't think that simply dismissing this as saying, it's, it's just a patch of fog and maybe it will pass. That seems to me, under the circumstances, the circumstances being, A, you're on the Barrow Downs, and B, uh, this is very parallel to the way that you were like entrapped by a, a powerful being before would seem that would seem to me to be foolhardy uh, for them to be merely dismissing it as uh, as normal fog. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, but the point that, Mike was making and that um, JJ was making earlier still seems to me to be a, an important and relevant point. They're not even saying, as Mike was saying, they're not even saying, oh, there's no need to call Tom Bombadil yet. It's not come up, right? Um, they don't even seem, their mind doesn't even seem to go there. We have no reason to think that they're even remembering or thinking about Tom Bombadil at all here, right? And that seems to me not a great sign, actually. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, JJ is listing the advice that Tom Bombadil gave them that they're systematically, uh, uh, that they've dismissed and, and JJ, you're right. You make a compelling case, right? Their thoughtlessness of Tom Bombadil, their forgetfulness of his advice. Um, I mean, that just to, to relay the list, right? Keep to the green grass. Don't go meddling with old stone, which they do, right, by leaning against the standing stone. Having lunch, leaning up against the standing stone, that's meddling with it, if anything is, right? You're just going to, seriously, you're just going to, like, have lunch with your back to, this, to the old stone that Tom told you not to meddle with? Come on now. 
Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, make haste while the sun shines. Yes, that's a really important one, right? And of course, they end up sleeping away half the day. Um, now again, is that just an accident? Of course, I think that what the narrator is signaling to us here is, of course, the perfectly natural reasons that he gives as a possible explanation uh, for their sleep are not, in fact, sufficient to explain their sleep. Uh, that I do, not, I do not believe that their sleep is natural, especially, of course, given the parallel with Old Man Willow. That the the approaches, I mean, the 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 uh, um, uh, the mo, you know, of the old forest and the Barrow Downs are really very similar. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. JJ uh, says that he thinks that uh, um, that that the way that they're not that they're forgetting the advice that they're not thinking of Tom Bombadil kind of fits with the spiritual aspect here in a way, and I agree. Um, I agree with that, JJ. I think that that's important. Um, one of the things that we will see is that the Barrow Whites want to shut out the memory of light, right? Forgetting Tom Bombadil, not thinking of, you know, forgetting about Tom and forgetting about his advice is, I think, a symptom. Um, that seems to me at least likely that that is a symptom of the attack. Because keep one of the arguments that I would make, they're not in a situation where they will soon be attacked by Barrow Whites. Right now, they are being attacked by Barrow Whites. They are under attack. Um, the Barrow White isn't there yet. We don't see it. They don't see it. But the Barrow White is almost never a physical threat to them. That's not the way it works. That's not the point. Um, it's a spiritual threat to them. And we see, we see them. They're under this kind of assault. Again, so far, they're doing okay. But I, I, I agree. I think that they're already sort of... Uh, suffering from this already. Um, soon they were leading their ponies in single file over the rim and down the long northward slope of the hill, down into a foggy sea. As they went down, the mist became colder and damper, and their hair hung lank and dripping on their foreheads. When they reached the bottom, it was so chill that they halted and got out cloaks and hoods, which soon became bedewed with gray drops. Then, mounting their ponies, they went slowly on again, feeling their way by the rise and fall of the ground. They were steering as well as they could guess, for the gate-like opening at the far northward end of the long valley which they had seen in the morning. Once they were through the gap, they had only to keep on in anything like a straight line, and they were bound in the end to strike the road. Their thoughts did not go beyond that except for a vague hope that perhaps away beyond the downs there might be no fog. Um, so they... They're proceeding in hope, but not in confidence, right? Um, they, again, we, we talked about this last time. There's, again, that image of, like, they're submerging into the sea, right? They're going underwater, uh, this time in the fog instead of in the trees. Um, they are still moving. Um, uh, uh They're still attempt. They they haven't submitted, right? They haven't given up. 
that's the that I think is the really important thing. Let's let's, let's keep going. Let's actually do a, This is the passage I was in the middle of reading, as I recall, when we cut out last time. Their going was very slow. To prevent their getting separated and wandering in different directions, they went in file, with Frodo leading. Sam was behind him, and after him came Pippin, and then Merry. The valley seemed to stretch on endlessly. Suddenly Frodo saw a hopeful sign. On either side ahead a darkness began to loom through the mist, and he guessed that they were at last approaching the gap in the hills, the north gate of the Barrow Downs. If they could pass that, they would be free. So hope flares, right? It's worked! Come on, follow me, he called back over his shoulder, and he hurried forward. But his hope soon changed to bewilderment and alarm. The dark patches grew darker, but they shrank. And suddenly he saw, towering ominous before him and leaning slightly towards one another, like the pillars of a headless door, two huge standing stones. He could not remember having seen any sign of these in the valley when he looked out from the hill in the morning. He had passed between them almost before he was aware and even as he did so, darkness seemed to fall round him. His pony reared and snorted, and he fell off. When he looked back, he found that he was alone. The others had not followed him. Okay. Tony, I also think it's interesting that Frodo here takes the lead and Mary falls back, right? Though, of course, Tony, I'm thinking about the confidence that Mary was attempting to keep up, right, as he was leading them into the old forest, and they were becoming more and more helplessly ensnared in the old forest. Um, I, uh, I don't know how literal the darkness is. Arthur was just asking about this. Is it just darker fog? Is it actually dark? Um, I don't think this, that, well, I don't think a fog was natural at any point, right? And I certainly don't think that the darkness around him is just a natural darkness. Notice what has happened, right? They're they're moving on in hope has been manipulated, right? They have been manipulated through that. They have been redirected. And so continuing on in hope has brought them to exactly the place where they did not want to go, right? They've been trying to leave the Barrow Downs and instead they've been brought to this thing which is obviously, uh, which is obviously... Uh, a threshold, right? They've, he crosses a threshold. It's like a headless door. Um, he's not leaving the Barrow Downs. He is entering. Uh, he's like crossing the threshold of a barrow here, not actually going underground, I think. But uh, uh, but he's he's uh, entering into the the sort of domain, right, uh, of the uh, of the Barrow White here again. He's doing the opposite of leaving, which remember just like what happened. Uh, before, right? Just like what happened before uh, in the old forest, as they're, they're thinking they can get through the forest, and where does it take them? Straight down to the Withywindle Valley, right? Um, you know, I don't know what they would have done if they just stayed on the Bald Hill, but surely being on the Bald Hill, they were better off than they were down in the Withywindle Valley, right? Well, I guess better off, except for the fact that they would meet Tom Bombadil down there. Um... Uh, Freemorn, great point that this is the first dialogue we've gotten in several paragraphs. Yes, nobody is, we don't get anybody speaking, right? We don't get the impression that people are speaking very much. Frodo's speaking up, come on, follow me again. I think that this is a, uh, this is a, this is a good thing, right? Um, I think that this is a, um, 
his his stepping forward to try to take the lead and to say, come on, follow me. Uh, this shows his spirit kind of like the song that he sang in the old forest, right? When he, uh, uh, when he, when he sang his own song to fight against the song of the forest. Um, and then of course we saw the counterspell to that at the time, right? Not just the branch falling down behind them, but that whole dampening spirit, right? Which chokes his voice. Um, but here again, he's speaking against the bewilderment, against the this the the despair, right? Um, but it, uh, and yet you're right, Steve. No, no, no song here, right? He doesn't sing anything. All he can muster is "Follow me," right? Um, now, Emma Thorne, I don't really know. This is something I've often wondered. Emma Thorne says, did they not follow at that point? Did they hesitate and not call the Frodo to hold up? Had they already been taken? Exactly what happened? Of course, it's all so confused. None of them can really uh, know, really has any idea what's happening, right? Um, so let's see what we get here. So he he passes between the standing stones. Right. As soon, remember, it's a really dense fog, so he can't even really see that they are standing stones until he's almost between them already. Right, And of course, he's not walking. He's riding his pony, so the pony continues uh, through the gate. And as soon as he gets through, he is in uh, darkness. Now, uh, darkness seemed to fall around him. I think, I don't think this is uh, you know, a, a, a denser fog which descends at this point. I'm not sure it makes it like to say, is it is there a real darkness or only a perceived darkness by Frodo? I'm not sure that question is a very meaningful question at the end of the day. Um, but I do think that the most important thing here is Frodo's own perspective, right? Um, what Frodo sees, um, what he is experiencing. Again, this is this is. This is a spiritual attack. This is not a physical attack, right? And what happens when he comes into their zone, right? When he pass, when he crosses their threshold, is he is now surrounded by darkness. The pony is unhappy as well, right? The pony can also sense that something bad is going on. The pony rears and snorts and bucks Frodo off, right? Um, we don't hear what happens to the pony right away, right? But we we can see the fact that the pony reacts suggests it's not just in Frodo's head. It doesn't prove it's not in his head, right? It might be in the pony's head as well. Um, this might be something that affects the mind, heart, and senses of anyone, any living creature that crosses over this threshold. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So, again, I, the question to me is, is the darkness really there? doesn't seem to me to be an important, uh, unimportant question, really. Um but, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Natvilkia says it's a, a kind of a Balaam's ass sort of moment. It would be even more so if uh, the pony had tried to stop him going between the standing stones and he had insisted, right? It's not the parallel to Balaam and his, uh, and his ass and his, you know, his donkey, uh, from the book of numbers is, is not, is, is not as close there as it could be under the circumstances. But clearly, like Balaam's ass, these ponies are 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 uh, more with it, more connected than their riders. Um, 
Yeah, and Freemorn, I agree with you. Boundaries, crossing over boundaries, that's a super important thing in fairy stories, right? And this does seem to be that kind of thing. I've been saying threshold, which makes it sound like a house. You know, that might not be the right word, but it's 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 definitely a boundary, right? When he crosses through. And this is where they've been led, right? Just as old man Willow was leading them down to Withy Window, uh, the Barrowette has been funneling them through this doorway, right? And into his domain, across his boundary. Um, great observation from uh, Finboga in the Twitch chat says, the first paragraph has only they, um, the pronouns, right? If they could pass that, they would be afraid their going was very slow to prevent their getting separated. Um, they went in file. And then in the second paragraph, it's all he. Um, he called and he hurried forward, but his hope, he could not remember. He had passed. He looked back. So we do, we, we're, we're, we're talking about the hobbits as a group at first, and now it just narrows to Frodo's own experience, right? Um, and that does give us the impression of Frodo's own sense of isolation, right? He, they were going together, right? But now it's just about, um, it's just about him, right? It's, it's, you know, he, he is, he is now alone, uh, with his, uh, with his experiences. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Lady Shmaviak asks if the Whites are concentrating on Frodo. Well, we have no reason to think that yet, but I think it's it's an important question, as it's important to keep that in mind. We might sort of assume that, but I think this is why one of the reasons I think that Finboga's uh, observation is such an important one. Um, we should notice that the narrative zooms in to, fo- to focus on Frodo almost exclusively here and to leave the others behind, because Frodo has left the others behind, has been separated from the others. Um... Do I think that he's made a mistake? Some of you are making jokes about splitting the party um, and how that's always a bad idea. I don't think it's fair to say that they've split the party. They were walking in, they were riding in single file, right? And Frodo says, follow me, just like they were doing before they've been doing that, right? Um, I don't think that Frodo has gone a distance ahead. I think that he's, uh, um, uh, I think that he's crossed I just think that he's crossed the boundary, and when he crosses the boundary, and the others, even though they're right behind him, uh, are on the other side of the boundary, they're separate. You know, he says the others had not followed him. Is that even true? Are, are we sure of that? He can't see anything, remember. He's surrounded by darkness. This is where, again, I think the whole, the, 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 the whole crucial thing here is in Frodo's psychology. Right, I'm not his psychology; it's the wrong word. In his psyche, right? Um, to say it's all in Frodo's head is not to say anything, uh, to cast any aspersions or to decrease the significance of what's going on here. Right? The whole battle is being fought in the hearts and minds of the hobbits here. Right? Um, so the important thing I think here is not the question: is he in fact separated from the others? But what's going on? He's he's been he's blinded. He can't see anything. He's in the darkness, and he's fallen off his horse, and now he's lying there in the darkness, alone. The others didn't follow him. He's all by himself, right? Whether that's physically true or not doesn't really matter, right? What matters is that Frodo thinks that, right? That is the thought that is filling his mind um, right now. Um, 
Sam, he called. Pippin, Mary, come along. Why don't you keep up? There was no answer. Fear took him, and he read, fear took him. Notice that, right? Fear is the subject of the sentence, and Frodo is the object of the action, right? Fear took him, and he ran back past the stones, shouting wildly, Sam, Sam, Mary, Pippin. The pony bolted into the mist and vanished. From some way, from some way off, or so it seemed, he thought he heard a cry. Oi, Frodo, oi! It was away eastward, on his left, as he stood under the great stones, staring and straining into the gloom. He plunged off in the direction of the call and found himself going steeply uphill. Um. Okay. Um. <laughs> Darlonio asks, you know, why don't they even have, uh, you know, uh, Darlonio, they should have 50 feet of rope and a 10 foot pole, right? If they have all of the uh, adventuring basics, right? Uh, it'd be, it'd be better if they did. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Tillian says it reminds her of uh, uh, him of uh, Frodo running around and shouting in the old forest. Yes, running to help help the running around and shouting, which eventually connects with Tom Bombadil, of course. Um, yes, but there's a difference, though. Um, it also and JJ, I'm also thinking about. Bilbo and the dwarves running around trying to find each other in the dark in Mirkwood right after the Wood Elves' rings disappear uh, after they've left the path. Um, it's very like that, very reminiscent of that. But the difference, the difference is they're not separated, right? They're lost in the darkness. Mad violinist, I'm thinking exactly the same thing. He thinks he hears a cry. Hoy, Frodo, hoy. Is that them? Are we sure that's them? I don't think it is. Where's it coming from? It was away eastward, on his left as he stood under the stone. So he, he was headed north, right? Goes through the standing stone, turns around is facing south now. His left is east, right, as he's facing south. So he hears the sound off to the east, and he heads towards the sound. So where's he going? To the east, and he start, He finds himself going steeply uphill. He's climbing up one of the barrow downs to the barrow that's up on top. So he's going straight towards a barrow now. The voices, the voice that he's hearing, the voice that he thinks he hears saying, Hoy, Frodo, hoy, is bringing him directly into the barrow, right? Um, I, I am not sure that the hobbits are around at all anymore. I don't know that Sam and Pippin and, and Mary haven't already been snatched. You could say, well, how would the Barrow Whites know Frodo's name to call out like a will of the wisp, the Lori, exactly? Um, uh, well, because the others would have been calling out to Frodo as well. Remember how Frodo's sight was dampened? Couldn't his hearing 
be dampened. They could all be, I could easily believe that these four hobbits uh, initially, right, when the darkness descends, are all sitting there within five yards of each other, calling out to each other, and they can't hear each other. Nothing seems more likely than that kind of thing could happen. Um, uh, is it possible that he hears them searching for him? Oi, Frodo, oi! And, he, and they're calling from the... No. If he was hearing, like, screams for help as they're being dragged up to the east, up into the barrow, then maybe I could believe that he was hearing the hobbits, but I'm suspicious, right? Um, because there are, as uh, Nathilkius was just saying... Uh, there certainly are fairy stories of fey creatures which call to travelers in the voices of their kin in order to deceive them and draw them on to their own destruction. That's a thing. Um, and I see no reason to believe that the whites aren't doing that kind of thing. And Tony, you're right. The fact that he's turning to the left, to the east, and that brings him towards the barrow shows that they initially they're to the west of the barrow, Right. So, hey, look at that, JJ. They have obeyed, perhaps accidentally, certainly in the fog and in the darkness, uh, that they, initially they're on the right side of Tom's advice, right? Uh, passed by the barrels on the west side. Well, that barrel they did pass on the west side. So what happens? Now that he's being drawn to walk of his own volition towards it, right? Is that necessary? Can he not be taken if he doesn't do that? Could he not have been taken if he hadn't gone through across the threshold? Remember, he's, he's crossed it back again, right? He's gone back south again. And what does he hear when he does? A voice calling to him that draws him to uh, go back, not straight north where he went before, but towards this other barrel, right? Again, the one of the main patterns that I see, it's, 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 it's about Frodo's wheel. It's about Frodo's choices, and I don't trust any of his sensory input here. Um, not the way that this evening uh, is, uh, uh, is, is panning out. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Freemorn says he doesn't hear the voice until he's crossed the boundary again, or thinks he crosses the boundary. Exactly. Does he actually cross the boundary? Um, even that, I'm not really sure if he succeeds in doing that. Um, yeah. The, um, you know, notice even his words, right? He's fallen off his pony. He's lost his pony in the darkness. Okay, his pony hasn't quite bolted yet, but he's fallen off his pony. Uh, this sudden, very uncanny darkness has just, he's been like stricken blind uh, here, having just passed between two standing stones. And his first words are not, where are you guys? Are you safe? Or even, hey guys, come help me, right? His first words are, why don't you keep up, right? I said, follow me, and you didn't. You know what, the, the fact that he is sort of expressing words of like annoyance and reproach to his friends under these circumstances. See, you know, I said before that their proceeding in hope was a good sign. That seems to me like a bad sign. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so Matt, I, I think that they know his they they know his name. Just be, I mean, they could just know it somehow, but I think it's more likely that they know his name because the other hobbits are, you know, they would learn Sam, Pippin, and Mary's names from uh, uh, from what Frodo says, right? Um, now, notice, I don't see any evidence 
that we've had any ring interactions at all. So I just want to put that out there, right? Um, it's always the question with Frodo, right? When Frodo is in a questionable sort of spiritual and emotional state, oops, um, you know, what, um, uh, what it, whoa, <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> did I hit the credits? I did. <laughs> That's really funny. That was an accident. <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, uh, the, the, so the, a legitimate question is always to what extent, um, to what extent is the ring influencing him? I don't see anything yet that suggests the ring is influencing him at all. Um, it's possible, but I, I, I don't, I, I've not, you know, my own, uh, you know, uh, warning alarms have not gone off here. I don't see anything that gives us any kind of, any kind of cues to suggest the ring is at work here in this passage. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Mad violinist, I agree. The voice is never identified with one of the hobbits. Only its location is suggested. All he hears is a cry coming from the barrow. Right. Um, exactly. The vagueness of that uh, also makes me pretty, pretty suspicious. As he struggled on, he called again and kept on calling more and more frantically, but he heard no answer for some time. And then it seemed faint and far ahead and high above him. Frodo! Hoy! came the thin voices out of the mist. Sounding more and more suspicious, isn't it? Thin voices out of the mist? Come on now. And then a cry that sounded like, Help! Help! often repeated, ending with a last, Help! that trailed off into a long wail suddenly cut short. He stumbled forward with all the speed he could towards the cries, but the light was now gone, and clinging night had closed about him so that it was impossible to be sure of any direction. He seemed all the time to be climbing up and up. Only the change in the level of the ground at his feet told him when he at last came to the top of the ridger hill. He was weary, sweating, and yet chilled. It was wholly dark. Where are you? He cried out miserably. Now comes the night, says Freemorn. That's not quite so bad as that, right? But yes, exactly. Uh, those of you unfamiliar with the Silmarillion, Freemorn making a, a, a Turin reference there. Uh, yeah, Frodo's night is not quite as dark as Turin's night when he said that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Freemorn, yes, the plur the plurality of the thin voices are suspect as well. Now there are three other hobbits, right? So he could be hearing more than one of his friends calling to him. Um, but I increasingly doubt it. Now because this is clearly not a trap, says the mad violinist, exactly. Um uh, uh Yeah, Lady Schmoyog, I love that uh, that image of the clinging night, right? The darkness. He's been surrounded by darkness, but now the darkness is. It's it's almost like the, um, you know, the 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 darkness is actually like blackening his body, right? Uh, as it as it itself clings to him. Um, yeah, yeah. Ignacio says this paragraph gives me worse chills than any other time in the book. Uh, this is a, a very, very chilling paragraph. I totally agree. Um, that's interesting, 
Erechab, I wasn't thinking of that, but the, the clinging night uh, reminds Erechab of the uh, the unlight from Ungoliant, right? The, the light with the, like, tangible being, right? Instead of just absence. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, question I've always had, and I'm not sure of. I am increasingly convinced the more I've read this passage, and especially as we're thinking it through tonight, I am more convinced tonight than I have ever been that the Hoy, Frodo, Hoy are Barrowites luring him in, um, that he's not hearing his friends calling out to him. But what do you make of the helps? The help, help. Is he actually hearing them as they're being captured? That, of course, seems not impossible, right? Um, we figure they are being captured at this point, um, so that somebody is uh, wailing, which is suddenly cut short. You know, one of his friends off in the off in the gloom um, seems entirely likely, right? So it's perfectly plausible that he's now actually hearing them. Um, Nadvilkius is thinking that that sounds like the Whites too. It's possible. Um, I, I could kind of go either way on those, right? Because, I, and honestly, I'm not even sure how much difference it makes. On the one hand, um, I presume not only that it's the Whites' voices that he's hearing, but it's only the Whites' voices that he's hearing beforehand. Um, again, I assume that uh, Sam and Mary and Pippin are pretty close to him at the beginning. And I presume that they're also doing some shouting of their own. That it is like, J.J., as you were bringing up, I think, before, um, the the Mirkwood scene in The Hobbit, right? When uh, you've got, in at least in the final case, right, uh, uh, 12 dwarves and one hobbit uh, running around in circles and calling out for all of the others. And, of course, the thing that's emphasized is that Bilbo can hear all the voices of the of the dwarves, right, until he begins to hear them you know, being suddenly silenced one by one that last time as they meet with the spiders in the dark. Um, but, uh, but still the point is he's hearing them in the woods around them. He can't find them, but he's hearing them in the woods around them. I assume that they would uh, uh, be yelling for Frodo too. He's not heard them yet to this point. So again, I come back to, are those cries for help? Are those the Barrow Whites just freaking him out? Or are those actually his friends? I'm not sure there's much of a difference between the two, because it seems to me that one of two things is happening. Either A, he's still not hearing his friends, and the Whites are like mimicking the cries of his, or mocking the cries of his friends, right? Imitating them uh, out of, uh, uh, you know, mockery and out of a desire to freak Frodo out more. Or they are allowing him to hear those cries, but no others, right? Presumably they were calling to him. He didn't hear them call, right? Um, there was no answer to his question, why don't you keep up, right? Uh, whatever shouts they were saying, whatever, you know, we've gotten nothing from them. That's clearly from them. Just these calls of his voice, which seem like they're not from his friends. Um so again, either the Barrowites are making the help sounds or they're permitting those sounds and those alone to come through to Frodo. In which case, either way, it's I think it's the Barrowites messing with him, right? Um, yeah, 
Tolanio, I like that idea of the whites maliciously echoing and mocking their prey. Yeah, that seems to me like a thing they would do, actually. Um, that they would be savoring those cries for help and the long wail suddenly cut short, right? Uh, that that's a sound that they would repeat uh, and that they would, uh, like, that's a tape they're going to rerun again and again, right? Uh, that's uh, that's the money shot for the whites, right? Uh, and so they do, and so they they imitate it, replay it, right? Let it come through to Frodo for the effect that it has on him. Um, not necessarily, um, not necessarily just as a lure. I think the, the calling his name is a lure, right? Um, I think it's first a lure, then a mockery. Now notice it has the same effect as the lure, right? It leads Frodo, uh, to stumble forward with all the speed he could toward the cries. So he was already moving towards the cries. Now he's running towards the cries, Right. Um, but, uh, but anyway, it's, um, it's really creepy, <laughs> right? Uh, either way, I mean, any way that we think about it, um, once you kind of get this concept, right? Once you, once you kind of see the, this scene from this perspective to think that at least some and possibly all of the voices that Frodo is hearing off around him are coming from Barrow Whites. Um, this is even creepier than it is, than it was before. Um, but Hrothgar, that's exactly what I see, that the, the, the Whites are feeding on their fear and prolonging the moment. Yeah, absolutely. They are, they seem to be looking for a particular response from Frodo, right? And notice where he gets, Right. Where are you? He cried out miserably, right? His own awareness of his loneliness. Now, he's trying to rescue his friends. So, in a sense, Frodo's response is still a positive response, right? He is, resp he is responding not just in terror, not just in panic, right? But he's responding energetically. He's trying to solve the problem. He's trying to help his friends when he hears them call out for help. Um, so, I, I want to give Frodo credit, Right? Um, I think that his, um, the spirit with which he responds here is a good one. Um, and he is, I think, in a sense, not giving in to the whites. He's physically kind of giving in, right? He's following where they want him to go. Um, but he's resisting. Not as much as Sam resisted old man Willow. Right. Remember, Sam's resistance was so great uh, in the sense that he, he was susceptible to it. I mean, he, he felt sleepy, right? But remember that Sam could hear the song, right? Sam was aware of the fact that the tree was singing about sleep and that there was something uncanny about this sleepiness. Now, I think that Frodo is under no illusion that there's something uncanny about this darkness, right? So I'm not saying that Frodo is duped where Sam was in the know, but uh but um he is uh but he is th this is the only parallel that we get he is he is the parallel to sam with old man willow he doesn't seem to be quite as distanced from it as sam managed to get um but he still is holding out against it right um and, J.J., this is an excellent question that I wish we had more about. 
JJ's trying to figure out how the whites managed to get the better of Sam, right? Yeah, we don't know what happened with Sam. Uh, I would have been really interested in this scene from Sam's point of view, actually. That would be a, uh, a, uh, that would be on my wish list, actually, is, uh, you know, to see Tolkien give us a paragraph or two of what Sam was experiencing at this time. I mean, it wouldn't fit in. It's better without it, you know, following Frodo and, and, uh, and just seeing it from, you know, his own isolated perspective, not knowing what has happened with his friends. That's part of the effect, right? His own isolation, his separation and his ignorance of what's happening. It's all important for the effect, but still, I would really love to see this from Sam's point of view. Anyway, um, uh, And no, fourth Dauntless, we cannot be sure that Frodo held out better than the other uh, than the other hobbits. We have as yet no data at all about that. Um, the the other three could all be fine for all we know, right? I mean, they could have escaped for all we yet know. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, huh. You know, Matt, I had forgotten about that. Matt's reminding me that we haven't heard a stitch of Sam's dialogue since the conversation by Old Man Willow. Matt, was has he said anything since he said, I'll have that tree down if I have to gnaw it? Yes, he did. Master Mary's caught in a crack, right? He said when uh, he, he gets a lineman talking to Tom Bombadil there at the beginning but we don't hear a peep out of Sam. He doesn't get a single line of dialogue in Tom Bombadil's house. Hmm. Interesting. That's cool. Anyway, um, I like to think that it's because he's soaking it up um i mean we know that he's not literally silent right um i mean we're told we're told in in the narrative that all of them were singing right at dinner and so presumably sam was too um so sam has not been actually literally mute the whole time he's been we just haven't gotten any dialogue quoted from him in the narrative um yeah 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 now uh, Vilkius, I tend to think that it's more like his the silence that we see him have with when he's in Woodall, right, um, with the elves. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, he was weary, sweating, and yet chilled. It was wholly dark. Where are you? He cried out miserably. Now here's. To me, this is the culminating moment, which to me, I won't go so far as to use the word prove because that's, that's a tricky, that's a, that's a dangerous word, right? But the most suggestive thing yet to say that the voices that he's been hearing have been Barrow Whites and not, or a Barrow White, uh, and, not, um, um, and not his friends at all. There was no reply. He stood listening. He was suddenly aware that it was getting very cold, and that up here a wind was beginning to blow, an icy wind. A change was coming in the weather. 
The mist was flowing past him now in shreds and tatters. His breath was smoking, and the darkness was less near and thick. He looked up and saw with surprise that faint stars were appearing overhead amid the strands of hurrying cloud and fog. The wind began to hiss over the grass. So, hey, that's all good, right? The, there's a change is coming. This is like the darkness of Mordor being blown away by the by the wind from the sea in the return of the king. Right? This is good. This is the wind changing faster than Tom can change his jacket. Just like you guys were saying, right? See, the fog just blew over. No problem. Right? Right? Yeah, Arthur, I agree. An icy wind is a bad sign. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. That's uh, uh, the fact that icy cold is descending and descending rapidly upon him is I think this is uh, seems to me to be an indication not of hey look you've escaped the trap but rather this is the this is this is what it looks like when the trap is closing not what it looks like when you're escaping the the uh, the, the trap and yes fourth dauntless I agree the hissing wind is definitely ominous um, uh, yeah, I do think it's an east wind coming. Uh, I agree with that. Um, he imagined suddenly that he caught a muffled cry, and he made towards it. And even as he went forward, the mist was rolled up and thrust aside, and the starry sky unveiled. A glance showed him that he was now facing southwards. Notice the directions. He was now facing southwards, and was on a round hilltop, which he must have been, which he must have climbed from the north, out of the east. The biting wind was blowing. To his right, there loomed against the westward stars a dark black shape. A great barrow stood there. Where is he standing? We got the directions laid out for us very, very uh, plainly, right? He is standing directly to the east of the barrow, exactly where he was told not to be. He is on the wrong side of the barrow, and... Where's the wind blowing? Where's the wind? Out of the east, right? Notice the irony? Exactly, JJ. The wind's in his left eye. Just like Goldberry said. Except he's pointed in totally north with the wind in your left eye, she said, right? North under the west wind, right? No, but he's facing south in the east wind. So he does, he got the left eye thing right, but everything else about this is wrong, right? He's got the wind in his correct eye, but he's facing 180 degrees the wrong direction. He's directly to the east of the barrow, and the, it's the east wind. So it, the, the wind was hissing and icy, and those seemed like bad things. And now we see the wind is blowing straight into the barrow, out of the east uh, the open, the unveiling of the stars seems to be sort of the end game, not the defeat of the Barrow Whites, but the end game of the Barrow Whites, right? Um, congratulations, you've made it, right? Look now where you are. Again, it's not about a physical entrapment, right? The Barrow White isn't trying to just nab Frodo, right? Nobody's getting snuck up on and wonked on the head with a club, right? Um, or just snatched off their ponies in the dark. It's all about 
um, it's all about the psychological effect, right? Yes, in the black wind, the stars will die. Not guilty, as I kind of think that's what we're supposed to be. Uh, that this scene is going to be something we should be remembering when we get to uh, when we get to his song. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So this is the fog is clearly lifting. And it's not lifting, it's being driven away by the icy, hissing east wind, um, just so as to reveal Frodo's situation. Yes, he's under the stars and trapped, right? Exactly where he was not supposed to be, right now literally on the threshold of a barrow, standing directly to the east of it. And then, where are you? He cried again, both angry and afraid. Here, said a voice, deep and cold, that seemed to come out of the ground. I am waiting for you. That line, by the way, is on my short list of freakiest, creepiest, scariest lines uh, in the whole Lord of the Rings. Um, Here, I am waiting for you. <clears throat> that's really scary. Um, but again, notice this is where, um, yeah, Tarlonio, I agree. It is like Frodo reaches center stage and the, the white raises the curtain, right? And of course, the next thing that happens is the white steps out onto the stage, right? This is the final phase of freaking Frodo out, right? The final phase of the taking of Frodo. But, but again, it's not been about, I need to get my clutches on you physically, right? It's from the beginning. It's been about maneuvering him into a certain position, right? And when he's there, what we see is he's both angry and afraid, right? Um, but notice he's answering uh, um, the Barrow White is answering his last two questions, right? He has just said, where are you? Twice. And, of course, he's talking to his friends, right? Well, he's talking to his friends who he thinks have been calling to him, right? Oh, Frodo, hoy, Frodo, right? Or help, help. Um, where are you? Where are you? Here, says the voice. I am waiting for you. And that, again, seems to me to confirm, or at least heavily to suggest, that it was the Barrow White who has been calling to him all along. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Sorry, I'm getting behind on the comments. I'm just looking them over. Um, Okay. Um, and uh, Valori, great question. Why is he angry? Right? The anger is interesting. But, but you see, Valori, to me, it picks up exactly on um, the line that we saw at the beginning, right? That note, uh, why don't you keep up? 
right? Not, are you okay? Or, oh my gosh, what's happening to me? Or anything like that. His response is, why don't you keep up? Right? And he's angry again now. All of the, you know, the, this sort of hodgepodge of, uh, of um, negative emotions, right? Fear, anger. Yeah, these sort of primal emotions, blue wizard, yeah. Those all seem to me to be kind of connected with the effect of uh, um, with the effect of the barrel white here and the sort of spiritual and emotional state into which Frodo is being uh, is being brought here. Um, no, said Frodo, but he did not run away. His knees gave and he fell on the ground. Nothing happened, and there was no sound. Trembling, he looked up. In time to see a tall, dark figure like a shadow against the stars, it leaned over him. He thought there were two eyes, very cold, though lit with a pale light that seemed to come from some remote distance. Then a grip stronger and colder than iron seized him. The icy touch froze his bones, and he remembered no more. Um, yes, Natvilkius, I agree. A pale light is never good. Um, the uh, pale light, uh, we see like a Gollum has a pale light in his eyes a lot, right? Uh, that's a pretty common thing for Gollum. Um, but yeah, a pale pale lights are never, ever good. Um, and uh, very cold as well, also not a good sign. Yes, there's a lot of pale light in Minas Morgul, exactly. Interesting. Hrothgar, that's a fantastic observation. Um, Rothgar says the White's attack on Frodo suggests that the others couldn't cry for help. Um, yeah, Frodo doesn't scream, right? He says no, but then he just drops and is taken, right? Um, yeah, yeah, that is interesting. I, I mean, now again, we don't know exactly how they responded. Um, he didn't run away, right? Um, he doesn't run away because his knees give and he falls over, right? Uh, I tend to think that his not running away there is not necessarily a sign of courage, but it's uh, it's a sign of helplessness, right? Like, I think he kind of would run away uh, if he could, but I don't think he can. Um, <laughs> JJ doubts it. JJ says that Sam would have screamed if anybody could have screamed, right? Okay, okay. Maybe Maybe Sam was able to cry help. Uh, you know, had the fortitude to cry help where nobody else could. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Arrowcam, I agree, Frodo doesn't, also doesn't run at the ford. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah. Well, again, we don't really know what they might have said or, uh, or, or didn't say exactly, but, um, But again, it seems pretty clear. The white could have taken him before if he didn't want to, right? The white, this is, it's not just that Frodo had to be brought to this place so that he would be vulnerable to the white. The place seems to be important, the boundaries and things that we've talked about before and the standing on the east side of the barrow and all that. Um, but again, I think there's more to it than that. And I think that that becomes even clearer 
when we see what happens with Frodo inside the, the barrow. He is going to have his own struggle with the barrow white, but it's not going to be a physical struggle with the barrow white. Um, we will uh, we will pick up on that next time. I think I'm going to stop here um, with uh, Frodo dropping unconscious and being hauled off by a barrow white. We'll begin next week with uh, uh, Frodo's experience when he wakes up inside the barrow. Hopefully we'll get to the song. Uh, I'd, 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 I hope next week to get as far as the poem. Um, but um, cool. Good. Um, excellent. Um, yeah, I know Mungley, right? Or, or Blue Wizard Brother. I only had the two slides, right? I, I I did put two slides inside the barrel just in case, but we're good. This is this this is this this is a good place to stop. Uh, I'm uh, I'm I'm happy with this. Exactly, Tony. I was thinking the same thing. Frodo was alive, but taken by the enemy. It's a good cliffhanger ending, right? It's been used before, and none the worse for being used before. I guess it hasn't been used yet, technically, at this point in the book. Um, but that's all right. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna stop our book discussion here. I'm gonna say goodbye to the folks on Twitter. Thanks for joining me, those of you who have been listening on Twitter. Uh, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna say goodbye to them. And okay, um, and now we're gonna continue because it's field trip time now. So we didn't get to do our field trip uh, last week because that was when my internet dropped. Um, it's almost time to go to the Barrow Dance. I know you guys went to the Barrow Dance a little bit last week without me, which was cool. Um, but, um, we're gonna, um, uh, we're gonna, I'm, I'm gonna wait one more week because I want to see the inside of the barrel before we head out there so we can see all the stuff when we're over there. Uh, so we'll probably do that next time, actually. Um, but, um, let's, um, let's continue our wander through the North Downs uh, is where I want to go. Um, so let's see. Valor, you're still with me here? Yep, still here. Yes, though you are in your alt Gothi, 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 right? Gothi, yeah. That's right. Same to you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, okay, very good. So we're going to... Uh, uh, so. We're just going to head. I think I'm going to just travel straight to Esteldine from uh, Westbury out there. Yep. Um, get a stable. Uh, if you're level 25 or higher, you can just take a stable over there. Otherwise, you can use a Mitchell coin if you have one. That's right. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm going to. Uh, so I'm going to. I'm, I'm just going to take a horse up there. We're going to meet on the. Uh, at the. Um, what do you call it? The crossroads. Yeah, the crossroads right outside of Esteldine. We'll kind of remember where we've been, look around to kind of get our bearings a bit, and then we will head over to Esteldine, which is the chief spot there in the North Downs. Yeah. Boy, what a cliffhanger you left this one on, too. I mean, I was reliving reading that for the first time, the way we were going into it again. And then, of course, we have to leave off it. What are furry-footed fellow-hide foils, I Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, it's anyway. A couple of people, you know, Tom and uh, Tony, were just talking about this in the Discord chat. Um, I I really can't imagine uh, being one of the people 
who had to wait more than a year for the Return of the King to come out after the Two Towers ended. Frodo was alive, but taken by the enemy. And then, you know, I mean, and of course, this was the time when Tolkien was all like, I won't say dithering because that's unkind, but he was struggling with the appendix. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, he just, he, he was having a horrible time um, figuring out what he could include and not include in the, in the appendices. And the appendices were holding up, you know, the book, of course, was already written and finished. And the publisher wanted to go, but he had already promised that he would have the uh, that he would have the appendices with it. Um, right. So he was, you know, the whole production was waiting on that, um, and uh, you know, it just became this uh, sort of nightmare of delays that had the publisher, um, you know, just tearing his hair out. But um, and the poor readers. I don't remember the time, but it was it was a full year, uh, maybe a bit longer between between those two. The gap between the Fellowship of the Ring and the Return of the King was not it was not that long, because the of course the the reason for the the, the publication um, in three books was not to try to create suspense. It was just to make the book more affordable. Yeah, um, no, I, I run a I run a publishing company myself. That many pages is nightmare especially you have to bind the thing and keep it from falling apart we're talking like new edition with appendices and notes bible kind of exactly exactly and then imagine trying to do that you know in the early 50s in england when paper was still really scarce after the war oh yeah yeah you know so the cost of production was 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 really high you know and and you know again that's that's the whole reason why tolkien wanted to publish the lord of the rings as a one volume thing it wasn't ever his plan to be the trilogy, he quite dis- disliked the separate volume thing. He sort of, you know, he submitted to it, but it was not his, never his vision for the book at all. Um, it was a pure pragmatic necessity because nobody would have been able to afford it. Um, well, I don't even think your rich American president would have been able to afford it. Either. Yeah, no, it, it's, it, it would have been. So, so yeah, so there was never a, like, let's make people wait for, for a couple years and, and kind of drag this out. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but of course it ended up being this whole cliffhanger and you've got to wait a year situation, uh, just because of Tolkien not getting the appendices finished. Uh, so how is that? Uh, that was sad. Now it's true that uh, Blue Wizard is pointing out that, of course, people had to wait almost twenty years for the Hobbit sequel. Well, that's true, but nobody was exactly on tenterhooks for the Hobbit sequel, right? I mean, there were lots Certainly of people who weren't expecting this. Exactly, <laughs> there were plenty of people who would have quite liked another Hobbit book, but that's 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 very different from uh, you know waiting anxiously for the next one to come out. Um, yeah. Exactly, JJ. The the end of the Hobbit is about as uncliffhangery as as you can get as an ending. I mean, it, it uh, um, you know, it's uh, it's it's not exactly, and they all lived happily ever after till the end of his uh, to the end of their days, but it's pretty close to that. So yeah, definitely. Uh, that, uh, you wonder what you know Tolkien had to mentally do to get Bilbo off the sofa again when he came back. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, he had he struggled with that. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons why he ditched Bilbo, yeah, as a protagonist. You know, from almost from the start. You know, he considered it briefly, but he wanted a different a different Hobbit right away. But, the story was over quite succinctly. Yeah, yeah, it really was exactly. 
All right. Okay. I think we're mostly here. So first thing I wanted to do was, again, just kind of look at the map, remind ourselves of where we were. So we've been doing, um, looking around at the North Downs, thinking about like the history of Arnor, essentially. And and, uh, um, again, it's one of the things that I love most about uh, uh, Lotro and how carefully they've designed things, not just on the the sort of the small and local level, but thinking about the big picture as well. Um, you know, we've talked about uh, you know, uh, Fornost and the, the sort of the shift from Anuminus out to Fornost uh, with the change in the North Kingdom and the, the, uh, the, the, the beginning of the Arnorian civil wars. We looked around um, and saw the, the rise of the Rudaur and Arthedine break you know, that we can, we can kind of, you know, read that in ruins and see some of the, where the frontiers lay there. Um, we were looking at the dwarf settlement up here to the north, north up here at Othrakar, um, and uh, the Rudaran settlement that's been taken over by the dwarves. Uh, that, was, uh, that was quite close to that. Um, I want to just glance down to the south briefly. Um, this is a place where we've been before, um, but, uh, cause this is Maluinen. You may remember way back when we did Woodall and the meeting with Gildor and Glorian, uh, we went to that place in game where Gildor and Glorian is in fact located. Um, but we just kind of jumped to it because we were interested just in talking about Gildor and, you know, where his company was headed, or at least, you know, the, uh, uh, the Lotro developers theory, you know, about, uh, you know, the story that they developed about where it was headed. Um, and, uh, that of course, so we, we, as I say, we kind of came to it out of context. Um, but just to kind of put it in its context, first of all, speaking of putting things in context, Hey, a gold deposit. Somebody better not let that go to waste. Um, there's this ruin up at the top of this hill here. A dread gazebo. It is a dread gazebo. Over there. Oh, yeah. Watch out for the low level folks. Ooh, on me. Yeah, somebody better get rid of that guy. Okay. I think the orcs are safe, but the orcs are not. Oh, yeah, but it's going to take too much. Don't, don't, don't pester the blue cows. <laughs> anyway, okay. Uh, what do we have here? It's all light and summery and pretty. It's got a leaf motif on it. Yeah, now we've seen that. Didn't we see that in one of the Arnorian ruins over towards Fornos, that, that, those vines? Did we see that in Minas Run? No, I, well, maybe in the, the, the stable point, right? Uh, oh, yeah, no, I was thinking of the one just to the north of that, like right to the north of the road, the one with the statues that we were looking at. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, um, I'm only thinking Rudars with all the with the big gaudy statue. Right. What is this symbol though? This looks, teardrop symbol. Like lotus leaves or Yeah. Lily? Water lily kind of stuff. And then they got the vine on the uh, as a running freeze. Yeah. Around the top. Same on the outside. Oh no, yeah. Oh it's off center now. It's almost like like mountains now. Yeah. There are no stars anywhere to be seen. 
I, I see no Numenorean, you know, Arnorian stars. JJ was asking why the guy on the top is holding a staff. Okay, JJ, I will admit, I didn't even notice it was a guy. But yes. Yeah, that took me a minute. I saw him too. Does he not have a head? He is headless. And yeah. he has no right arm. He only has his left arm. And that does look like a staff and not a sword that he's yeah. holding. Huh. So is this Elvish or a joint product? Well, that's what I'm wondering, right? Uh, on the one hand, you know, theory um, could be uh, could be could be Gilgalad. It could be a spear that's broken off, rather than yeah. a, doesn't have to be a staff. Could be eyeglass. It could be he's eyeglass. Not dressed, exactly. Quite like a warrior, though he's dressed like a saint. Yeah, it does look more like a, fl a flowing robe thing than a than an armor thing. Um, Saruman or Mithrin Mir or something. Maybe. That it doesn't be... seem the type to have statues built after. No, not really. And it would be... Yeah. Uh, there are other buildings that look like this. And... I can't remember the yeah, well, Thank now you. I want to go down and look at them again and see if we can see any more of this. Um, <laughs> um, uh, see if there's any more of this uh, teardrop. So I, I like um, Rothgar's theory that it's an artichoke. Uh, it does look rather like an yeah, artichoke. Yeah, artichoke was my second, I guess. I so I think that's what I'm going to call it, the artichoke symbol. Um, the artichoke. Some elf is rolling his eyes and sighing dramatically right now. Right. <sighs> Amethorn asks, what age is it from? Well, if it's a wizard, third age. Um, yep. But I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily, I, I'm not convinced that every person in a statue holding a staff is necessarily one of the Astari. No, that's fair. Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of others. I just can't think of any, like, lore masters or sages at the time. Just yeah. like Huh. Because we've, we've seen statues of Gil uh, um, was it? Yeah. We've seen statues of some of the elven heroes of old. They weren't dressed like that. Yes, that's true. You can get them in the housing sections. That's true. Um, yeah, um, I agree. Matt is pointing to the ground, how the, the ground, there's no floor. Right, it, it it looks as if the bottom of this uh, ruin is several feet underground, which suggests yeah. it could be a much older ruin. Ground shifted. They didn't dig their posts deep. <laughs> right, or yeah, that, and either it is subsided, or you know the the ground has just kind of grown around it over time. Um, it's just an erosion, or something. Well, look at these roots, though. They used to do a heck of a lot of damage. You'd think. But I don't know. It almost looks like it exploded. Do you see how far out scattered all these cornice pieces are? That's true. Wouldn't it just... It's, well, then I guess half of it probably toppled over. Yeah, I mean, the bit that isn't there presumably did topple over. And what was this? Was this the top of a larger structure? It can't be the top of that. I mean, I refuse to believe that this is like, you know... Used like to there's be, a castle built under there. Right, exactly. That it sank like 50 feet into the ground. Like that. I've I, seen... They have stuff like that in Poland. Yeah? No. 
I think we've seen everything like that. Yeah, I guess. Um, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. JJ's thinking of Swamp Castle, which I was too, but not on high ground like this. You know, it's not uh, going to burn down, fall over, and then sink into the swamp. Exactly. The ruins down here. So, the, anyway. The, the openness of this, the this looks like it's interesting because one of the things that I the reason I, I approached this and the reason I wanted to look at this is that it's it's interesting because this is on the highest point in this little area, right? So we've got the mountains up, you know, to the north, and you've got the mount, the hills over there. Uh, but in this flat plain, which is now farmland, this rise is the highest point. And we have this old ruin right on the crown of this hill, which seems like a very sensible place to put a watch tower or something like that. I was looking at this gazebo thing uh, from the uh, see there. You can see Othricar up in the distance there, up to the north. But straight ahead of us, you can just barely see right in front of where I'm uh, looking. You can just see the the beacon. Oh yeah, right there. Um, when we were up on the beacon, I was looking at this and thinking, like, okay, what was that? Yeah. Because now now that we're here, the one thing it obviously is not is a watchtower or a lookout no. post. Because, I mean, okay, that statue, whatever it is, is, you know, has the good view, but nobody else did. I mean, there was no approach to that. Um, so uh, It's enclosed, too. Yeah, exactly. So this seems to be right ceremonial, Tillian. I agree. Something, um, uh, uh, something, maybe to uh, uh, just a, a more sort of casual, relaxed place, which is interesting because that would make it unique, right? Um, I don't remember any. We see ruins like this in Illuminus, you know, out in Evendim, um, but this kind of um, I'm a kind, friendly, pleasure-seeking locale. Um, yeah. Is not you know, we, place for a picnic. You know? Exactly. We, we've seen all fortifications so far in the North Downs, um, and nothing like that. Which also then maybe suggests that this is either made by somebody else, like the elves, rather than the Dunedain, who were all at war with each other, or <clears throat> it was uh, older, predated. The yeah, before, before this place became a war zone. Yeah. This could have just been a nice place to be. Right, exactly. It, it actually might have got caught in the crossfire of some of these wars. Right, right. Which, uh, though you can't, although it's on high ground, you can't really think it would have been a, a defensive gem, as it's not a defensible place. I mean, it's completely useless as an actual fortification. But anyway, let's, um, let's, carry, let's keep going south here. Let's keep our eyes open for that. The artichoke. <laughs> the artichoke symbol, exactly. Now, I was just going to look at Maluanen from the hilltop, and now I want to go down. Okay, now notice at the bottom of the hill, we immediately see that some brainiac has built a fortification at the bottom of the hill instead of at the top of the hill, which is interesting in itself. First of all, notice, Matt, this is also another sunken ruin. Look at this, right? Nobody, nobody built that arch, right? I don't think this was a hobbit building. Look at this. Narnian is bumping his forehead against the against the, the keystone of the arch there, right? 
That arch was never built like that. Nope. This is another summit thing. Yeah. You get the feeling that most of the ground here is just not great for building. Apparently. Good for farming, not for building. But yes, this is very obviously another sunken ruin. This one clearly, though, was a defensive fortification. Yeah, look at this. Look at how far down this archway starts, right? Clearly. <laughs> this you can one... see the Corinthian cap right here. Exactly. About four feet off the ground, yeah. Uh, so clearly that was that used to be taller. But again, just as clearly, this was a fortification. So, uh, And I was joking about it being at the foot of the hill, so clearly this wouldn't do you much good for anybody coming from the north. But, of course, it's not a bad spot for anybody who is intruding from the south such as these elves these down guys. here. Okay. Well, and the other thing is, you know, sinking into the ground now, but, and I say this is bad ground, but if you're thinking in terms of centuries, it's a little different than thinking in terms of five years, ten years, fifteen years. Right, like, exactly. Look at Mexico City. They built the whole city over an artificial island they built in the middle of a lake, and it's only hundreds of years later we have buildings that are sinking sideways into the streets. Right, exactly. Just because they did not think that far ahead. Yes. So it could be this was a great idea at the time. As you can see by some of these elven ruins here, they thought this was a brilliant idea at the time. Right. Right. Now, these are clearly elvish constructions. This little gazebo thing here is... This, uh, this does not match our other gazebo at all. Yeah. No, not at all. It is different in almost every way. It's so baroque. <laughs> yes. I mean, the style, utterly different. Right? Gold crap everywhere. <laughs> yes. Yes. Gold everywhere. No indication there was any kind of statue up at the top. Well, they still got the closed dome at the top, though. It looks like it's... Yeah. Closed dome, though, again, we get all that, like, filigree business, which suggested, which which looks almost as if the... It might have had glazed windows around the top of it. Yeah, that's what I was wondering about the other one. It's like, was there was there glass in there, leaded paint, or something like that? Right, right, exactly. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, this, of course, looks like, as we observed at the time, this looks a lot like the uh, ruins that we see down in, um, uh, what do you call it? Erid Luins. Uh, yes, but also I'm thinking, of course, of... Uh, Oh, what is wrong with my brain? Why am I, why am I blanking on this? Um, uh, Eregian. That's oh, yes. what I'm thinking Oh, about. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm not seeing artichokes anywhere. But not only am I not seeing artichokes, I'm not seeing any stonework that looks even vaguely like the stonework upon which the artichokes were carved. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is all the style of this utterly and completely different, not just in how it's decorated and this sort of mixture of woods and glass, uh, clearly glass now here in the more modern parts. Um, carved hair and symbols or yeah. I think it's a hair. Even, but even the stone, right? I mean, the stone is totally different. Yeah, um, yeah. The stone up there is a lot more like what you'd see in Bree. Exactly. And like the other ruins that we see in other places. Um, yeah. But doesn't not, match the Rudar ones, though. No, it doesn't quite match them. And again, we certainly don't see the same iconography there. No. Uh, and look at these pillars, right? I mean, there's just nothing like this. But hang on. Let's, uh, oh. 
there's there's a, another possibility with the the, stuff, the gazebo on the top of the hill. Yeah. Sometimes maybe they just put it there to say, this is my hill. Right. But who's they? The elves? Uh, but yeah, I don't know. That's the thing. You yeah. They might never really intended to come back. Okay, so careful. Lo- for, for low-level f- folks, things get a little dangerous around here. Oh, yes, yes. Even just yeah, from the flies and everybody. But yeah, I got a fly on my butt. Someone wants to get it. Yeah, somebody wants to kill off the mobs in this area. That would be helpful. Oh, spider. We got wolves uh, here. <laughs> Spiders. We got a little bit of everything. But this... Manifestly, a Rudar in ruin. <laughs> yes, I'm totally going to pay attention to these ruins in just a minute. You still have things chasing you? Yeah, no, I think I'm good. You're good now? Okay. It doesn't help all the animals have purple. Right. Okay. So, here you see the Rudaran symbol right away. Yes. Right? Um, yeah, here we just get wall upon wall as we have this sort of concentric, again, clearly defensive structure. Yeah, this is not the leisure palace of the other place. No, this is like the other Arnorian strongholds that we've yeah. found. I forget how do I get up there. Going the right side. Nope. Uh, through the little ah, arch. Thing. Sure. Under this way. Hey. Have to dismount. I saw people make it up here. Why am I not making it up here? <laughs> no. Hey. Right here, man. Right where I'm standing. Go through the, go under the arch. Under the arch? Okay, I'll go yeah. under the side. Go up here and go under the arch. Okay. Whew. There we go. All right, <laughs> made it. Okay. All right. Um. Yeah. See, now this would be a would it be a good place to build your central keep up here, right? And we've got the the yeah. sort of the shield walls around the side and some fortifications around the back here too. So this, we don't even really see a fortress exactly, just sort of the surrounding walls, the curtain the walls. The stone over here is different. The stone on this side is different. Over here? Yeah, it's a lighter color. It's not the same Rudar stuff. It is a little bit lighter, though still in the same Rudaran patterns. Super thick, though. Man, look how thick they built these walls. Yeah. They meant business. Um, yeah. Okay, you so you can see more of it this way. You can see more of it on this side. I wonder if you can get a look at the side of it. As I recall, yeah, that not still Rudar, right. that hill over there to the north—that's just like the spider's den, right? Yeah, yeah. We don't want to uh, do that. Yeah. And I think this is the end of the construction. We've got spiders to the north of us, trolls to the south of us. Uh, right. But, and there you can see the orc camp across the way. Yep. Pretty good vantage point over here. Yes. So, 
the artichoke gazebo still is a standout. Now, um, there's another. I remember somebody sending me on Twitter a screenshot of another ruin that has that artichoke symbol. Because I was quite taken with it because I'd never noticed it before I was sent this. And it was, if I'm remembering correctly, the ruin that that the screenshot was from was in the northern Brewens in like the, the, um, the Brandy Hills. Yeah. I think. Um, but... Um, Ooh, Amethorns, there's a stone structure. Oh, yeah, way up there. That is, I believe, yes, that's in Nanwethrin. The, the wall that we can see up there on the on the mountain. Yeah, that's right. On the other side. Chandra's Quest says Artichoke Gazebo is a great... Yeah, the Artichoke, it's yeah. officially the Artichoke Gazebo from now I on. I think I played guitar for Artichoke <laughs> that, that, that would be a great band name, wouldn't it? And now, Artichoke Gazebo. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I feel like we can get a pretty good sense of this region, except I still don't see the Artichoke Gazebo. All right, so the dwarves. Othricar doesn't look very ancient. Othricar looks kind of recent. It's not very ruinous at all. They didn't even, like, you know, build ceilings or anything. Yeah. Which, of course, you know, easier for the roofs not to cave in when you don't build roofs at all. Um, but Never bothered him before. <laughs> exactly. But nevertheless, Othricar does not look, I mean, doesn't, um, uh, it doesn't look ruinous. And in any case, um, there's still plenty of dwarves there. And it was just built for the mines, and we don't know exactly when they discovered them. Um, but, um, but oh, and Tony, I totally agree with you. Pelvis Fire is still my favorite Lotro Stream-inspired <laughs> band name. I had so much fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no question. No question. I think, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that is, that is still the best. Um, anyway, so... I'm going to leave Othricar out of it because I think it might be comparatively modern. But if we if we if I go to the to the map here, right, um, at the time of the Arnorian civil wars, we have the Rudaurans fortifying this whole region. We have um, the fortifications, their fortifications, right here on the boundary overlooking Fornost, uh, down here in Minas Run. That was that. These were our first Rudauran ruins that we found. There was the other major Rudauran ruin up to the north here by Othricar, uh, to the north of that important river crossing. And then we have another one down here where we currently are located by Meluanin. Now, the elvish structures down there, clearly some of those elvish structures are very ancient, um, uh, presumably long. I, I would assume they would be second age um, uh, yeah, I think structures. the Elsie are actually not native to they right. are on a pilgrimage and tour, touring. They're tourists. They're tourists, so. right. Those that are currently living there, yes. So and, in theory, Rudar could have come in up here after they were all gone. 
that is possible. But so though I okay, because we've got the we've got the part of Maluin in there with the red roofs, right? That clearly the modern part, like the building yeah. in which Gildor Inglorian is currently standing. Um, but of course, the ruined Elvish Baroque gazebo down there, right, is clearly much more ancient. Um, yeah. And as I said, looks like a Regian construction or Kellendim construction. Uh, and I would I would I would place that, especially the those enormous pillars or columns that are ruinous and fallen over down there. Um, those seem to me like, you know, the grand constructions of an earlier age. So I'm thinking that when the Rudarans are building fortresses around here, ready to prepare, you know, uh, a set of defenses or a set of staging points from which to launch, launch an offensive against Fornost, um, I'm thinking that Maluinen was probably already there, but already ruinous at that time. Well, yeah, that, that's where you'd want to set up camp or someplace for everyone else's vacant. Right. But, but they, also, it's just close to a crucial water area right here. Right, exactly. So, but then, then there's the gazebo in the middle. Yeah. And I don't know. I have no, <laughs> I have no theories about, uh, about, where um, that came from or about what that symbol is. That's the thing that's bothering me more than anything else is the artichoke symbol itself. Those... Yeah. yeah. It, it doesn't seem to recall any heroes of men or elves that stage is right now. I can't think of any. I can't place it either. I mean, they look like they could be water drops. They could be petals. They could be... And there are three of them. Um, Servant of Ulma, maybe? Or? I don't know. I mean, if it's water, I mean, they kind of look like water drops, but they might not be We're water drops. We're by a big swamp, too. Yeah. Something related to... They but could be know. flames, Nathokius. It's possible, but they don't look very flame-like. No, they kind of ha- look happy. Wow. Yeah. But they don't necessarily look convincingly like water either. Uh, I mean... Yeah, they look... Uh, petals, I think. Petals? Yes. Petals, and it goes with the vine that goes up on the top. Yeah. And I agree, JJ, that architecture looked more mannish than Elvish, certainly in stark contrast to the to the Maluinen architecture. We just don't see a lot of knit plants until we get to Bree and we have everybody knitted after. That's right. That's right. It could be a family crest... Poomfuls as it could be a water lily. Yeah, yeah. This was during Goldberry's imperialist stretch, uh, but she, you know, she got After over she that. stopped drowning men, she moved <laughs> Yes, <to Holland. laughs> exactly. Started building gazebos at strategic <laughs> locations across the countryside. Um, yeah, as far as I can see, it's just a big thing going, you know, I was here. and no other clues. But there's the statue on the top. Right? Yeah. There's um, a statue of someone we can't identify and someone with no it, head a and a yeah, robes and maybe a staff. Um Yeah. More questions than answers at More this point. questions than answers. Um it is very mysterious. We'll have to see if we see anything like it. 
around in the areas where we go to. And I'll see if we can find somebody. Tell me if, if you can find the one that I, I think that the one that I recall hearing a rumor about uh, that's in the Brelands up in the Brandy Hills to the north of Buckland. Um, I think. Uh, um, I think that 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 pedal, the, you know, the, the, the artichoke icon might have been in use there as well. Um, uh, anyway. Should indicate what this is part of, is it part of the unified art or? The gazebo? Maybe, if there was one in Breland or Buckland. It's certainly possible. I mean, as we were pointing out, it, it already, even iconography aside, it stands out as the only peaceful non-military structure Military, you know, man-made, non-military structure in this entire region. I, I don't recall any other examples of that anywhere in the North Downs, except for the earlier parts of Rudar's castle before it was converted to fortress. Right, right, yes. Um, yeah, and yeah, no, the the whole Goldberry's sister plot line is is down in the Lowlands south of here. Um, we're not seriously in Goldberry territory here. No, no. Yeah. Um, well, that's not to say that, you know, some other, because this, the water plays such a big part out here, there wasn't any dedicated themselves to the water, like I said. But yeah. it seemed more planty. Is there anything else like it in Breed? That's where I guess I would want to look because yeah. that's kind of our only other, we only have a couple possibilities, right? I mean, somebody had to make it and the only peoples that we know of that lived here were the Numenorians and the Brelanders who have been in Breland since before the Numenorians came back yep. and the Hillmen um, who live not far from here. Um, but, uh, and they seem to be related distantly from the Brelanders, you know, in being sort of, uh, sort of comparatively indigenous, that is compared to the Numenorians, uh, comparatively indigenous, um, uh, folks in this area. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that would be a thing. Go through uh, Buckland more evidence of that yeah so see see where else we can find that artichoke symbol and we'll uh and we'll we'll kind of compare locations and, and architecture and see if we can see any other symbols there okay, homework assignment that's your homework assignment yeah yeah um yeah <laughs> yeah and if we, we'll visit uh, and, and we could even visit them either next time or the time after so hunt for the artichoke. Find me as many artichokes as you can, and we'll see if we can get to the bottom of this. Um, and an amazing sunset here. That's true. It's and here, we've gotten really close to Esteldane, and now I'm not sure we're actually going to get there. <laughs> well, we might as well at least go. We have time to go. Yeah. All right. We need to get to the stable at the very least. That's true. Like me. Maybe if you get to the stable. Okay, so let's let's yeah, move I was forward here. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, exactly.
move, oh, there's a spider. move forward here and avoid the bulk of the spiders. And there's our artichoke gazebo. Okay. Um, yeah. So now we come to Esteldine, which is, as everybody knows, the worst kept secret in the North Downs. Um, it's kind of a running joke in the Lotro world because it's meant to be an entirely secret. Um, like its its existence is this deadly secret, and yet it's um, like perfectly obvious to be seen, and it's like Grand Central Station with people coming and going all the time. Man, I was sent here to learn woodsmithing. That doesn't sound secret to me. Right, exactly. Okay, and again, from like any hilltop, you can see it very plainly. Um, yeah. Yeah, you want hard to find Rivendell, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Rivendell is convincingly a secret valley, yes. uh, especially if you're trying to get there on foot from the Fords of Bruinen. Um Now, as a stronghold, um, as a stronghold, it, it, I mean, it looks fairly effective, right? You've got these tall walls and these narrow gaps and hills, and then another random set of arches, mm -hmm. but no artichokes. Or vines. Or decorations, indeed, of any kind. What the heck was this? No clue. But at least it looks like an arch. Or it's maybe... a doorway. There's a pillar smack right in the middle of it. Yeah. A doorway. A, an obstructed doorway to nowhere. Um, and, of course, the stone is exactly the same shade as the Esseldine stone on the other side. Yeah. Wait, hang on. I might have spoken too soon. There is something carved Where? on carved on this. Is that a blemish in the stone, or is that a car? No, it's a blemish. Uh, it's a blemish. Oh, okay, I thought that was a carving for a second. Sorry, no, it's texture mapping. <laughs> All right, texture mapping. Thought it was a buffalo, but okay. All right, that's fine. Um, Everyone, the password is swordfish. <laughs> On the outside, okay. No stars. Not much to see here. Yeah. Just... No stars. Stone upon stone upon stone. It, it's not decorated. It's not. This was, this was not built to impress. This was built to do its job. Yeah. No. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's construction is like the other um, Arnorian ruins that we've seen. Highly defensible entrance. Got to approve of the multiple gateways there. What's your name, Oh no, you lost. Oh dear. Yeah, was, it's it's always going through doorways. Every time I go through. Right. Doorway. Yeah. Still nothing. Is it functional? Anything on the archway? No. Nothing on the archway. 
anything around the walls in this courtyard? Anything on those towers? Anything on the pillars? No. Well, the pillars look just like the ones outside. Those towers up there. No. Archways. No. Nothing. We keep coming in and out of the zone of the roving threats, which is kind of unsettling. Reminds me of the time a few weeks ago when I had one of my alts uh, uh, farming ancient silver and iron in the uh, Misty Mountains. And I was in giant territory, but I was over level, so I was ignoring them. You know, so I'm like, the giants are just wandering around. And, uh, and I walked right up to the roving threat who was standing right next to a, 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 an ancient oh, silver crazy. deposit. Because he looked like a giant. He was a giant. Right. And I just I totally didn't even notice that his he was the one red mob on my mini map because uh, he was in a crowd of other giants. So I just like walked right up and started mining right next to him. And he just plastered me in one shot. Oh, man. No, I've, I've, <laughs> I've had, it took like, what was it, nine of us, some girls of Mythgard to take that guy down. Yeah. Not pleasant. Yeah. I was uh, I was surprised. Unpleasantly Those guys surprised. Chuck you too. Yeah. Okay, so this thing right here, this seems to be, this fountain seems to be like what that, see we've got the four columns with the arches, this seems to be like what that doorway thing was meant to be like, kind of, except it's not set up the same way because you you have the arch connecting diagonally instead of around the sides like this. Remember it looked like a doorway with a column on the other side, so the arches went differently. And there was no fountain in the middle of it, too. So it clearly wasn't a fountain, but it was like this. It was like a little, uh, presumably, little courtyard thing, which leads you to believe that this thing was never intended to be secret. I mean, you don't put, like, big old columns like that outside, you know, your front door if you're trying to keep your front door a secret. Uh, so welcome back. Yeah. Okay, and here we finally get some carving. Ooh, we get some good stuff. Not only do we get Numenorean stars above the door, concerning which, great. But look up above that. Who is that? Who's that up there? What's he holding in his hand? Is it a book? No. It's a wave. It's waves. It's somebody... It's a, a, a an authoritative bearded figure standing either on the waves or next to the waves, and he's holding a snow globe. He's holding silver. Maybe, nah. Nobody with a beard was ever holding a silver. Um, oh, where are you seeing the beard? Seeing the beard. He's totally bearded. Look at his jaw. No way. He's got a beard. Let me crack. Just the shape of his head there. It's got to be a beard. It could be a palantir. Can't rule it out. It but could it be a helmet. Might be in an enclosed helmet. Nah, no, that's no. totally a beard. But it could be a palantir. This could be Elendil gazing back over the sea on the, in the palantir. Yeah, that I can believe. Uh, interesting though, because he's berobed, 
right? He's not wearing armor. Have we ever seen Elendil represented not in armor? Now, representing him holding a palantir and looking back longingly over the sea would be an interesting time to depict Elendil not in armor, because then you're not thinking of him as the conquering king, but rather thinking about him as the exile looking back on his land. Um, Is there something inside Well, yeah, that's why I said snow globe at first, because it doesn't just look like it's not a featureless ball. (laughs) It it looks like um, it looks like a thing. Our building on a hill inside a sphere. It's a gazebo. Aha. It It is. uh, Yeah, it's the it's the like divine model. Right now, it's possible if it's um, it's the capital of Gallifrey. Um, it could be that he's seeing something in the Palantir, so that yeah, that one. So it'd be what Elvenholm that he's seeing, Numenor. I mean, yeah, I Numenor is below I, the waves, I right? That might be the spire. The fire. Oh, could it be the mental tarma that he's seeing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's there, one on the other one, door too. The other, the one bathed in the eerie green glow over the. Yeah, now let's see if we can see anything different than this one over here. Doesn't the picture of some kind of building or structure? It's like all the columns that we've seen. Yeah. What the hell is that? Jugged and helmet. Uh, Tyrion upon Tuna, possibly. What's he holding in his other hand? Has he got something in his other hand? Not his other like it's, it's cut off or trailing off the side or something like that. Yeah, come around the other side. Oh. Yeah, I see what you mean. He's holding a sword or a staff or something. This might be the guy we saw on top of the Zippo. Ah, okay. Well, if he's holding a staff, he's holding a staff pretty casually, like back behind him out of the picture. Um, yeah, so it's not eye gloss or anything. It's just something he has. Could be a staff. Could be a scroll or a scepter. Ah, could be a scepter. If it's a Lendo, he would have a scepter, the scepter of Enuminous. That could be a a kingly mark. There is Dev. If that's a Palantir. And look at that, you can see, I can see more clearly anywhere. Maybe I'm just noticing now. Look at the, the sunburst around the sphere. Yeah, I did notice that. How many points we got? <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight or nine? 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 Probably doesn't have the symmetry then. If it's nine points, that would seem to support the Palantir idea. Yeah, yeah. Right? It, would that be a way the nine points, like the nine rays of light coming out from the Palantir to suggest the nine Palantiri? It's his network. Right, exactly. 
That's pretty cool. We got any more of these around here, or just this guy? Yeah. This is what the thing out front was. It's this little baffling archway with something stuck in the middle of it. It wasn't an archway, it was a frame. Yeah. Oh no, of course there weren't nine palantiri. There were there were there were seven palantiri. I'm thinking sorry, I, I have Gandalf's rhyme going through my head three times <laughs> three, so I was thinking of nine. But of course there were nine ships. Uh uh What brought they from the fallen land over the f- uh, flowing sea? Seven stars and seven stones and one white tree. Um yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, there are seven Palantiri, of course, but uh, yeah, at least exactly as you say, uh, Nephokius, uh seven in Middle Earth, seven that they brought with them. Um, they're not the only ones. Hmm. I wish I could see more clearly what he's seeing. Gosh, doesn't it look like a helmet? That's what I was wondering, too. That was my second thing. Was it was it a helmet of some kind? Like he's talking to some guy. Right, it's another guy he's talking to. Yeah, that front is a nose guard and got the, yeah. the taste guards on the other side. Huh. I don't know. Interesting. Wow. Well, the only things they carved here in Esteldeen were sure was sure interesting. The rest of it's pretty plain, but that uh, that's a pretty good payoff there. It is interesting that they took the time just for this. And yeah. Like Do they... not even caps on the columns or anything. Yeah, and the rest of it is so plain. Do they have it over the crafting hall too? I don't think so. No, it's just the stars. You think the crafting hall? I know, right? Something artistic. Well, and we get the scepter in the middle, which I haven't seen the scepter symbol anywhere else. Yeah, Yeah. check that out. It's kind of interesting. I know. If I know any crafters, they're all going. We're not making one more thing till you pay us. Yeah, see this this archway is like the one that was outside. The 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 top arches are going in the right direction here. So presumably yeah, this with the flat course so no fountain in the middle. Oh right. The so, flagstones yeah, so underneath. That makes more sense than just clocking your head on <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So they had one of these deals. I don't even know what this is still. Like what was the point? Of this. Exactly. Was there a well up there at some point? Or I don't know. Uh, a teleporter. Yeah, I don't... Uh, yeah. Another stinking gazebo. That's the answer to everything tonight. Gazebo. Gazebos. Yeah. Okay. Well, I should let people go. We're uh, We are over time now. And see, look at that. We did get to see Astolian after all. After weeks of not getting to it. We will head out the back door of Astolian and look around to the east. 
uh, of Esseldine in these mountains here for next time. Uh, no, well, maybe not for next time. Maybe next time we'll go to the Barrow Downs. Yeah, I think next time would be better for Barrow Down and we try Angmar when we're on Landerfall. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good call. All right, well, we're not going to get to Angmar next time anyway. We've got we've got some room to explore off here to uh, to the east. Uh, but, um, uh, but that's all right. We'll, we'll, we'll look around. Um, okay. So thanks everybody for joining us. Let me know if you find any more artichokes and, uh, we'll check those out, uh, as soon as we can. Uh, thanks for joining us though. And, uh, we will, uh, we will rejoin Frodo from our cliffhanger here this week. Uh, and uh, pick back up with what happens inside the barrow next time, and we'll get to some barrow white poetry. Uh, you uh, you gotta love poetry by the undead. So, uh, <laughs> thanks very much again for joining us, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye now. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of the Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org slash fund.